lives, or don't actually, you don't need to. It's just the song When the Monster Came from the band The Young Gorgie Surf Team. It's from their album, The Urban Surf Collection. You can find them over at theyounggorgiesurfteam.bandcamp.com or follow the link in the show notes over at monsterkidradio.net. That's the website for this podcast, Monster Kid Radio, the home of classic movies, Modern Talk. I'm your host, writer, producer, Derek M. Cook. Welcome to the show. I'm excited this week. You know, I'm excited every week here on the show, but this week I've got somebody new on my podcast. He's an author by the name of Scott Roche. Now, I first found out about Scott, learned a little bit about him through the podcast, The Dead Robot Society, where he's one of the co-hosts over there. The Dead Robot Society is an award-nominated writing podcast. I've learned a lot. I've laughed a lot with these guys, and it was just a thrill to get one of them on the show. Scott has a new anthology that just came out called House of Phobos. We're going to talk a little bit about that in our conversation with Scott, but that's not the only thing we talk about. We're going to introduce you to Scott, establish his cred as a monster kid, and then we're going to talk about the Vincent Price film, The Tingler. That was a fun conversation. After that, I'm going to come on and talk about the next upcoming Monster Kid Radio Crash. This is being put together at the last minute. I apologize for that. I wasn't entirely sure that I'd actually be able to make this happen. This one is big. So you'll want to stay tuned for that. Also, I'm going to talk a little bit about, well, not to bring it down, but the recent passing of somebody who has added to my Monster Kid radio experience, as well as Monster Kid experience. We're going to get to that after I talk about the crash, after the conversation about the tingler with Scott Roche, right after this. Emergency. Batman speaking. Warning all of you to brace yourselves for big news. The biggest. Tell them, Robin. Holy superlatives, Batman. It's really exciting. Soon, very soon, Batman and I will be batapulting right out of your TV sets and onto your theater screens. That's right, Robin. Our first full-length motion picture feature in color opens a whole new world of thrills. more space on land, sea, and in the air to challenge the most bataclysmic collection of super criminals ever. Their minimum objective must be the entire world. And here are the dastardly villains, the Catwoman. You're going to see the perfect crime when I get Batman in my claws. The Joker. Have you heard this one? It'll kill you, Batman. (laughs) The Penguin. There are two eggs this wily bird is going to scramble. Batman and Robin. (laughs) The Riddler. Question. Who's going to make the feathers fly and knock Batman and Robin out of the sky? See, the new weapons in the Bat Arsenal combat the forces of evil. The Batcopter. The exploding man-eating shark. Holy sardine! The relentless Megaton Magnet. The unholy quartet secret submarine. Fire one! Fire one! The Batboat, for an action. 
the deadly disintegrator. The attack on the Batcave. Holy hallucination! You'll blast through the skies on these mad, manned missiles. And you'll be with me, Robin, at the Bat Scanner, eavesdropping on Batman's romance. And you'll shudder at the death-dealing Polaris missiles. Brace yourself, Robin. This could be the end. And that's just a sample of the exciting exploits ahead in our first feature motion picture. Holy memoranda, folks. Make a note not to miss it. Good thinking, Robin. Hello, Christopher. What insanity are you up to today? Oh, hey, Lydia. I'm downloading some movies. What? People are always telling me that's illegal. Uh-uh, not these. They're all public domain. Oh, look, Rescue from Gilligan's Island. Well, let me see what you're doing. Oh, you're at archive.org. Well, they have thousands of films, TV shows, commercials, radio shows, and books available. Yeah, but there are so many. I wish there was a podcast or something that would discuss these things. You know, give us an idea of what's worth the time. Um, Christopher, there is. We do one. Oh, that's right. We host Orphan Entertainment. Once a month, we pick something from archive.org and review and discuss it. <laughs> that sure is nice of us. <laughs> sure. Why don't you click over to orphan-entertainment.jonja.net and remind yourself a little more about the show. <laughs> Will do. So let's see. That's orphan-entertainment.jonja.net. Hey, can we review the Gilligan's Island movie sometime? Mm-hmm. We'll see, Christopher. We'll see. Listen to William Castle, whom the Saturday Evening Post calls the master of movie horror. Do you believe in ghosts? I do. And you will, too, when you come to this theater and see my picture, 13 Ghosts. Uh, no more dictation today. When you see 13 Ghosts, you'll be given a supernatural viewer like this which will enable you to penetrate for the first time into the spirit world. It will let you see all 13 of our weird, wonderful, and wildly assorted ghosts. Now, brace yourself as we take you across the threshold of our haunted mansion where there's a ghost for everyone in the family. Father, mother, sister, brother. scared stiff too when you see what they see. Thirteen ghosts materializing in ectoplasmic color through the magic of Illusiono, the ghost viewer. The ghost of a lion in the basement. The ghost of a murderous cook in the kitchen. Stop it! Stop it, I say! The ghost who speaks through the lips of the living. Death tonight to one of you. The evil ghost in the bedroom fighting to take possession of this beautiful girl. You'll feel all the thrills and chills of seeing one ghost multiplied by the magic number 13.
Monster Kid Radio listeners, today's guest I've had on my Kindle, on my iPod, and now I've got him on my podcast. Scott Roche, welcome to Monster Kid Radio. Thank you, Derek. It's a pleasure to be here. So I mentioned a couple of things. I want to introduce you to the show listeners. On my Kindle, uh, what I mean by that is that you're a writer. Most mm-hmm. recently, at least on my Kindle, I've got the casebook of Esho St. Clair. It's an occult detective story, actually two of them, and I'm really into this particular type of, of story. The subgenre speaks to me. Is that fair to say it's an occult detective? Yeah, yeah. I, w- I would say what I was shooting for was there's uh, the TV show Spencer for Hire that was popular in the 80s. There was a character on that show called Hawk. And he was played by the same actor that played Captain Sisko in Deep Space Nine. Um, and so there's also, of course, a, a character that your listeners may be more familiar with, which is uh, Jim Butcher's uh, Dresden, Harry Dresden. So I wanted to combine the badass of Hawk from the uh, Spencer for Hire series with the occult detective aspects of the Dresden Files. And that's how Esho St. Clair came to be. I really enjoy it. I like the rough and tumble mixed with the occult detective and the supernatural. It's just a lot of fun. Yes. I mean, it was a lot of fun to write. I'm working on the – those are both – I would consider them novelettes or novellas. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm working on a full novel-length Esho St. Clair adventure. I'm about, I'd say, somewhere between half and two-thirds of the way through that. Oh, nice. Um, I'm shooting for that to go live first quarter of next year. That's really exciting news. That's – Something I'm looking forward to. I mean, I'll have to hold myself over with these excellent stories that you're writing on your Patreon page, and we'll get to that here in a second. But I also mentioned that you're on my iPod, and that's because you're one of the co-hosts of the Dead Robot Society, which is a writing podcast that I've been listening to for years. I tell you that if you would have told me, and I've said this before, if you would have told me four or five years ago when I first started getting serious about writing and I was a listener of the Dead Robot Society and a fan of all the guys that were on it, at that point, if you would have told me that I was going to be in the third chair, now I guess the fourth chair, I would have laughed in your face. But uh, when when Justin McCumber decided to take a little bit of a hiatus, Paul Cooley called me and asked me to, to fill in his chair until he came back, and it's just been, and, and they invited me to stay on when Justin came back, and it's been so much fun. The Dead Robot Society, it's a mostly weekly show, uh, and you guys share your writing journey. You've become kind of my writing buddies, my mentors, uh, the people that I kind of look up to when it comes to my own writing. Uh, I think out of all of you, you and Paul probably write the kind of fiction that I'm mostly into. So I love it when you guys are on the show. I've learned a lot. So I would like to publicly say thank you for your work on the Dead Robot Society. Oh, you're welcome. You're welcome. Yeah, and Paul, I tell you what, if, you're, if your listeners are not familiar with Paul Cooley, he is an amazing horror author and one of the smartest writers I know, both from a business uh, point of view and from uh, a writing and writing dissection point of view. So, yeah, he's, he, I'm glad that you've learned from us, and I just want to say that I've also learned a lot from Paul. So uh, uh, I, you're welcome, and uh, we'd love to have you on the show sometime. Oh, wow. Because um, we, we like to have writers from all different experience levels come on and talk about their process and talk about uh, – so it's not just the three or four of us talking. We try to do some interviews and things like that. So, yeah, definitely would love to have you on and talk about what you do. But it's been, it's been great, and I strongly encourage people, if they're writers or not, if, if they're interested in any way about how the sausage is made, so to speak, in terms of writing – um, I would say that Dead Robot Society 
and I Should Be Writing were the two podcasts that got me into writing seriously and have helped me since I've become a writer professionally. Wow. So listeners, you heard that, man. He invited me to be on their show, which is awesome. I'm, I'm a little goosebumply about this whole thing. <laughs> As a heads up about Paul Cooley, he's a great guy. He knows his stuff. I've talked with him on Facebook. We're Facebook friends. Not necessarily safe for work all the time. Just so people No. Know. <laughs> yes. Absolutely. Not safe for your mental health. Not safe for work. Not safe for multiple things, um, especially the street, which oh, if you're not familiar with, is <laughs> uh, Paul basically took Sesame Street and noir fiction and mashed them up into a very adult series of short stories and novellas, and it's it'll melt your brain. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it'll destroy your childhood and probably cause you to need therapy and... My, I have a 15-year-old daughter, and she discovered the street independently of me on via Paul's podcast. And uh, I just – I was so embarrassed and mortified and <laughs> – Oh, no. And tickled, actually. But <laughs> don't tell anybody I said that. <laughs> I won't. I won't tell Paul at all. So uh, Scott, Paul, uh, Justin McCumber, and Terry Mixon is the other regular on the show. I've met Terry in person. Great guy. He comes out to Oregon every once in a while for some writing workshops, and I, I had the opportunity to sit down with him and his wife for dinner once, and that was fun, too. So, again, thank you for all of your hard work on the Dead Robot Society. Thank you for all your hard work on Esho St. Clair, and I'm looking forward to the new book. And thank you for coming onto my show to talk about some classic monster stuff. This is my bread, and this is what I love. So, thank you. You're welcome. When I reached out to you, it was because I've been reading the short stories that you've been putting out on your Patreon page. Scott's got a Patreon page. Writers got to make a living somehow, right? So Patreon's part of that. I've got a Patreon page. Listeners know how it works. But these short stories, this is an October thing that you started, right? Yeah, I, I love this month. I have been a horror fan. I say in my bio that I've been a horror fan since an, uh, an embarrassingly young age. Whether that's embarrassing for my parents or for me, I'm not sure. But I cut my teeth on the classic Universal Monsters. And uh, my brother, I have a stepbrother who's about five or six years older than I am. Uh, I remember he had an 8mm film projector. And we used to watch the black and white 8mm Universal horror pictures in the 70s on my bedroom wall. It was my everything, you know, and then and then as I got older, I got into Godzilla and I got into Hammer and I got into, of course, growing up in the 80s and 90s, uh, the all of the horror staples of those, the slasher films, Freddy Krueger and, and Jason Voorhees. Uh, but I still am a huge fan of the old school Universal uh, and Hammer horror pictures. And so I decided for October, and this was kind of an experiment, I needed to drive some traffic to my Patreon page, and I needed to spark my my juices, my, my writing juices a little bit, and I really am trying every month to improve my discipline, my writing discipline, sitting down at the keyboard, writing every day, which is something we talk a lot about on the Dead Robot Society. Um, sure. Developing your particular discipline whether for you it's, you know, three days a week or five days a week or seven days, whatever, whatever. If you can consistently get your backside in the chair and write, that's a good thing. And also just to explore these icons of horror and try and give my own, 
unique spin on them. You had me at watching monster movies on your bedroom wall. Yes. So listeners, I mean, come on. There's any any question that Scott's a monster kid? Come on. <laughs> this, that, that's fantastic. So I didn't have that experience, but exactly. I, I found these all on VHS. But, man, to have these on the wall, that, that would be a lot of fun. The, the smell and the sound of the Super 8 or the 8mm. Yep. Yep. Nothing like it. And the Universal Monsters, I mean, those are the backbone of classic horror, classic monsters, and, and I didn't even say classic cinema, but yeah, I'm a little biased. Yeah. What are some of your favorites when it comes to the classic Universal? I have always been a big fan of werewolves. Mm, okay. And so, obviously, the Wolfman and all the various, all of the various iterations of the werewolf throughout cinema, it, it's always been... I don't know what it is, but there's something about the the aspect of the the nature aspect and uh, just the wildness of it. And werewolves are scary, but they're also cool, and they can do good things or bad things. You know, vampires are almost always bad guys, but werewolves can sort of play uh, in that gray area of being a good guy or a bad guy or just sort of a, a guy, you know. And of course, vampires, you know, I have always been a big fan of vampires as monsters. I am yes. not as big a fan of what some people have done in the genre recently, making vampires into more sympathetic characters. I think that vampires should be predators first and foremost. And if you want to make them a little more fleshed out, sympathetic, whatever, uh, that's cool. But my favorite vampire is the Nosferatu from the the very first oh. vampire movie uh, that I know of. It's just that it's inhuman. It's a monster. It's got the long jagged teeth and the long skeletal fingers and it's just scary as hell, man. So I like, and I, I love, I love Bela Lugosi. I love what he did with Dracula over the course of his career. And of course, Christopher Lee, um, what he did with the vampire in the Hammer films, it's amazing the breadth and depth that you can achieve with a fairly simple horror icon. This is the story of Dracula, a creature who destroys all whom he touches. Dracula the terrifying, the feared, who sleeps in the tombs of the dead by day and arises at night to inflict his terror upon the innocent and the unsuspecting. You must help me. You must. You're my only hope. You must. I'll help you. I promise. This is not Lucy, the sister you loved. It's only a shell, possessed and corrupted by the evil of Dracula. How do you destroy a fiend who has so far proven himself indestructible? Those who come to end his reign of terror stay to become his victims. Castle Dracula is summoned here in Klausenberg. Will you tell me how I get there? You ordered a meal, sir. As an innkeeper, it's my duty to serve you. When you've eaten, I ask you to go and leave us in peace. This is the doctor who dares to challenge the vampire Dracula. This is the anguished man who fears for the lives of his beloved, the girl who is his sister, 
and the one that is his wife. Dracula, the bedeviled master of all that is evil. It's interesting, though, in my, in my youth as a monster kid, something that I never watched until I was an adult, actually, was uh, The Creature from the Black Lagoon. And I did do a creature story. Um, and I, it's, it was nothing that I ever got into as a kid, but I did see the visuals. And so that is also in my cesspool of imagination. No! No! Sheer stark terror grips you in underwater 3D in Creature from the Black Lagoon. The most terrifying monster of the ages rises from the sea, raging with pent-up passions. Making every man his mortal enemy, every woman's beauty his prey. Creature from the Black Lagoon in 3D, starring Richard Carlson and Julie Adams. Every horrifying scene leaps out of the screen right at you. A universal re-release rated G. Uh, but yeah, just all the classics. But my favorite definitely has to be the werewolf. Yeah, listeners of the show know that Creature is my jam. I mean, Creature is my favorite film, period. I'm such a fan of that film. I love that movie. The werewolves, though, there is something, especially about the Wolfman and Lon Chaney Jr.'s performance, that yes. is sympathetic. It does strike a chord. I, I'm right there with you, brother, regarding the vampires. I mean, they're monsters. They're, you know, they kill you. They suck your blood. They probably have really bad breath. You know, they're, they're monsters. Let's not make <laughs> them sympathetic. But yeah. the werewolves, that's where you can kind of project those sympathies. <laughs> Jenny Williams was killed? Yes. Find something? Animal tracks. Whoever is bitten by a werewolf and lives becomes a werewolf himself. Oh, don't hand me that. You're just wasting your time. The wolf bit you, didn't he? Yeah. Yeah, he did. You wouldn't want to run away with a murderer, would you? Oh, Larry, you're not. You know you're not. I killed Bela. I killed Richardson. If I stay here any longer, you can't tell who'll be next. So Lon Chaney Jr. is the man when it comes to werewolf films, the Wolfman. He made that role his own. He's the only person who played him for Universal. Yep. Are there some other werewolf films that you consider your go-to movies? I really like the portrayal of the Wolfman in, oh goodness, um... Del Toro, Benicio Del Toro. Oh, okay. Uh, he did a really, the whole film was a really good take. It was basically a reimagining or a, a reboot or whatever. I'm not sure, an homage, if you will, to the classic Wolfman, Lon Chaney Jr. Wolfman film. Uh, and I think he brought some of the same tragedy to the role. Um, American Werewolf in London, obviously. It's not a werewolf film technically, but Wolfen was also really cool. I just like wolves in general, I think. <laughs> um, but the concept of the thing I liked about Wolfen and, and, and some of the other, like American Werewolf in London, was bringing the werewolf or bringing the wolf into the urban setting and that tension uh, between the urban and the, the wilderness is really cool both as a writer and as a as a reader uh that's a great tension because you know as we as human beings as we spread out into the world and we take all of these uh, we take over the habitats of wild animals and there have been a number of four movies over the years that have played with that trope you know we we push into places that we don't belong and where there's their dire results yeah i just let's see um other werewolf movies 
there are a lot of good mashups and team ups, I guess, that have werewolves in them that I've also enjoyed. Like, let's see, oh, what was the Monster Squad, the Abbott and Costello movies? The 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 blend of horror and comedy uh, when it's done right is awesome. Like uh, with Shaun of the Dead. Oh, zombies are another favorite, but. You have to be careful because zombies have kind of gotten overdone. And vampires kind of have, in my opinion, have been overdone too. And that's why I liked the humor that, that Shaun of the Dead brought. And I'd love to see them do, I'd love to see somebody do a really good werewolf comedy with that same kind of deft touch. Isn't that what the Twilight movies were? No, no, <laughs> no, not intentionally, <laughs> not intentionally, but, um, and I've only seen the first Twilight movie, so I actually haven't seen any of the werewolf action in those movies. You're one up on me. I, I haven't seen a full one yet. So. You know, I, I kid, I've got friends that are huge Twihards and I kid them mercilessly, but I've read half of the first book and I've seen some of the first movie and I can see why it's popular. It's oh, not sure. my cup of tea, but I can sure. see why it's popular. I saw the baseball scene in the first one. My wife and I were flipping through channels one night, and we stumbled across the baseball scene and just something like watching a car wreck. I, I, we, we couldn't look <laughs> away. It took us almost every bit of our being to be able to change the channel afterwards. But if you dig them, great. Good for you. I'm glad you have something you enjoy. Absolutely. I try not to, I try not to crap on other people's fandoms if I can help it, but sometimes it's hard. And I think another favorite of mine are the giant insect movies. Oh, yeah. I'm sitting here looking at a, at the movie poster for them. Watch out for them. A menace never known to man or beast before. An endless horde of crawling, crushing, gigantic creatures. So horrifying there was no word to describe them. Watch out for them. Watch out for Warner Brothers screaming new shock sensation, them. I saw them. They were huge and scaly, and they had gigantic jaws, and, and then one came at me. Kill one, and two take its place. This is the endless onslaught of them, clawing up out of the earth from mile-deep catacombs. See them, the most astounding journey into terror ever taken, starring James Whitmore, Edmund Gwen, Joan Weldon, and James Arness. Them! As cheesy and as horrible as the special effects as we see them now in retrospect were they were still scary to me as a kid you know there's something about that sound effect that they used for the giant ants and that still that still scares me and then of course the giant spider movies i'm a i'm a i'm a recovering arachnophobe which you may find hard to believe given if you've seen the cover from a most recent anthology and the fact that i did do a giant spider story for the patreon uh, but I am a recovering arachnophobe, and I have recovered primarily, actually, through writing stories about spiders and sort of watching movies about them and trying to desensitize myself to them. Because they're, they're amazing creatures, but they're very effective in the horror genre because they're just, everybody's scared of things that have that many legs, if they have any sense. <laughs> There's a primal uh, response to, to most spiders, especially when they're big and furry. And, yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You mentioned the sound effect in them. That's really what pushes that movie over the edge for me in terms of the fear, the scare factor, the sound yeah. effect that the ants make. Oh. 
<laughs> but, but it's good stuff. I love them too. And you're right. We can look at some of these movies and, and roll our eyes and, oh man, look at those special effects. But, you know, you put yourself in the right mindset. These movies are gold. Yes. Well, and, and the thing that, then they did the thing that good horror always does, which is look at our society, wherever it may be, at yes. a particular point in time, and poke at some of the areas that we're going into as a society that we might should be a little more careful about. Um, good horror is often a good morality play and good science fiction serves that purpose too a lot of times. And and so the them and the other movies like that, since they're sort of a blend of science fiction and horror, they did a really good job of talking about the dangers of things like radioactivity, which we didn't know a lot about uh, the nuclear bomb and in the modern day, it's done the same thing with things like screwing around with the gene pool and, and biotech and, and all of that kind of thing. And are we using the technology wisely? You know, it's never a good idea to try and make sharks really smart. It's, you know, it's never a good idea to try and make bugs really huge. Nobody should try and do that. Um so, so yeah, I, I, I appreciate the older, especially the radioactive monster movies, the message that they were trying to send, which was we as a culture need to be uh, careful about what we do and where we go with our technology. And, uh, the, and that's why I love the Japanese monster movies, because they were doing the same thing, talking about the atom bomb, talking about, you know, uh, technology and how, how it can have effects that are unintentional. So, yeah, I, that's one reason why I love the, those old giant bug and giant, uh, whatever fill in the blank movies, because they, they often at least tried, they may not have always been successful, but they at least tried to talk about those kinds of issues. Listeners, that wasn't planned, but <laughs> I am right there with you, man. And I've talked about this on the show before. I love these older movies and monster movies and just older cinema in general because you get to see what society was like and what they were dealing with, what the issues were. I mean, these are documentaries in a way sometimes. Absolutely. And, and to see these things really highlighted in a monster movie. You've got the stuff in Creature from the Black Lagoon. You've got the giant bug you know, movies. You look at something like The Wolfman. You've got this American guy showing up in Europe and, and causing havoc. There's all these things happening in these movies. If you really dig deep, of course, they're enjoyable on the surface level as well. You know, that's what I like. Uh, you know, as a writer, I try and do good story first, social commentary second. Um, because if you try and make social commentary first, a lot of times you end up being too preachy. But but I think that the thing about horror and science fiction and genre fiction in general, it gives you that distance from reality so you can do the social commentary without being in your face about it. And it gives you a level of remove that um, literary fiction doesn't have. So you can substitute things like giant dinosaurs for genetically engineered corn. <laughs> you know, um, <laughs> And talk and talk about the whole genetic engineering thing without picking on something that may be a hot button for some people, because nobody thinks that bringing back dinosaurs and opening a theme park is really a good idea. Um, it may sound good on paper, but not so much in reality. Well, now I want to see a monster movie with genetically engineered corn causing havoc. That's what I want yeah. to see. Yeah, it'd probably end up on the Sci-Fi Channel like two in the morning, but still, hey. I'd love to see it. 
you know, I used to talk crap about the sci-fi movies, but they've had some good ones here lately. I mean, they still they're still cheesy, but they're trying to do the right thing by by making something cheesy and fairly low budget, but at the same time having fun with it. You know, they're it's they're doing they're doing it on purpose to a degree and just turning it up to 11 and having a blast. And they've turned out some decent, like my son loves, loves the Sharknado movies. I've seen the first one. I could see why me as a 12 year old boy, he's 13. I could see why the kids that were, you know, us, you know, 20, 30 years ago, I don't know how old you are, but (laughs) this is to them Mm -hmm. what the Hammer and Universal movies were to us. Sure. Yeah, they own it. They own it. Yeah. And there's, yeah. you know, if you if you own it and you have fun with it, then good on you. And you're right. They've got a huge following, and uh, it's not something I would have ever predicted. I'm in my 40s, and I can imagine getting sucked into the uh, Sharknado films in my teen years. Definitely. Well, I I've seen the first one. It's fun. You know, for what yeah. it is. It's not high art, and I don't think anybody involved in the project thinks it is, and I think that's no, no. what makes them even more enjoyable. But the funny thing is, if you had told me, you know, when I first heard about the very first Sharknado movie, that eventually it would get have a big budget, and they'd actually get, you know, the people from the Today Show <laughs> to be a part of, <laughs> like, the I think it's the third movie, mm-hmm. I, I would have laughed, because that's crazy talk, but that it happened. So, you know, you never know what you're going to tap into uh, as a creator, when you start something on a lark, you know, you never know what nerve you're going to hit. And when you do hit that nerve, it's a good idea to kind of stick with it as long as you can. As long as you've got an audience, go for yep. it. Yep. I, I want to shift gears just a little bit because you mentioned uh, your upcoming book. And the title of that book is Fright Effects Induced by the Injection of Lysergic Acid LSD 25, right? Yes. Yes. Okay. It, it, years of research has gone into that. <laughs> Um, and it's been, it's been an interesting trip. Ha ha ha. Oh, oh. <laughs> oh man. Uh, yeah. Sorry. No, that's okay. I do. I don't want to short shrift talking about the book cause I did pre-order it and we'll, we'll get back to that, but it does have a spider on the cover. Uh, the book title that I just mentioned is the book that Vincent Price is reading in the movie, the tingler, which, you know, if you're a monster kid, you know, you're William Castle, you know, you're Vincent Price. You got to know the tingler. I'm William Castle, and I feel obligated to warn you about the next attraction you will see at this theater. The picture is The Tingler, which I directed. And for the first time in motion picture history, members of the audience, including you, will actually play a part in the picture. You will feel some of the physical reactions, the shocking sensations experienced by the actors on the screen. I guarantee that The Tingler has more shocks per minute than my last film, The House on Haunted Hill. But don't be alarmed. You can protect yourself. When you see the picture, you will be told and remember the instruction how you can guard yourself from attack by the Tingler. And now may I show you a few scenes from the Tingler? Mm-hmm. 
When was the first time you saw it? Oh, gosh. You know, probably when I was a kid, I went through a Vincent Price phase. I, I guess calling it a phase really isn't doing it any justice, because a phase typically doesn't last 30 years. But um, <laughs> I did go through a, a period of time in my, in my childhood, my teen years, where I watched a lot of Vincent Price. So I'm sure I watched it in there somewhere. And it's one of those movies that every time I saw it on, I came across it on TV. You know those movies where you're flipping through the channels and you see the movie and you stop and you watch the rest of it from wherever it is. Oh, yeah. So I've, I've seen it in bits and pieces for who knows how many times. So I probably, the first time I watched it was probably in the early 80s. And I watched it most recently to get to prep for the show because it had been a while since I sat and I watched the whole thing. And so I, I encourage people, if they haven't watched it recently, to go out and, and watch it. But I love Vincent Price. Oh, my gosh. Such a talented actor. Knew when to have fun. Knew when to buckle down and be, be serious. And the thing I love about him is so many times he's not playing the monster, at least not necessarily the obvious monster. You know, sometimes right. his, monster, his monsterhood is sort of hidden and I think the Tingler is one of those instances where he's not the monster of the film. At least he's not the Tingler. But in some ways, he's definitely a monster. That's one of the things that I loved about this movie, too, is his performance. You're right. He can go back and forth. He can play either the villain or the hero or somewhere in between. And I love him for it. I'm a huge fan of Vincent Price as well. This movie, he gets to do both. He's a victim of what's going on with his marriage and his wife. But then he also has that scene where he pulls the gun on her. And, oh, he's so creepy and Vincent mm -hmm. Pricey there. So he gets to do it all in this movie. And I really enjoyed that. Of the Vincent Price films, do you have any particular favorites? I mean, obviously, this this one's a good one. I love the Dr. Fibes movies. Oh, okay. I, I love them so hard. It's because they're campy and they're so over the top. But at the same time, they're scary. And I love the fact that he's like the, he's the first wisecracking, smart serial killer. The movie Saw would not exist. Yeah, that's true. Without Dr. Fibes. The mm -hmm. movie, you know, Freddy Krueger would not exist without Dr. Fibes. The the wisecracking, you know, unique kill type serial killer would not exist without Dr. Fibes. And the the sort of weird 70s, you know, psychedelic stuff that's going on in it and the bright colors and all of the I mean the oversaturation, the music, the organ, it's weird, it's out there, but it's yeah, so I just love both of the Dr. Fibes movies. They're they're classics. And of course The Fly, which was not a Vincent Price vehicle, but it's definitely a classic. Yeah, those I would say those two, the Dr. Fibes and The Fly, so those were on fairly uh disparate ends of his career, uh, <laughs> are just amazing. Uh but he's had such a long career. Oh yeah. He's done so many movies. Him and Christopher Lee, the length and depth and breadth of their careers are amazing. And it's one of those deals where when, when, we see, when you say Stephen King, people think horror novelist. When you say Vincent Price or Christopher Lee, they think a lot of times they'll think, you know, scary movie actors. But there was so much more to them than that. There was so much more capability and talent uh, than just scary movies. As if scary movies wasn't enough, but, you know, there's a lot more to them than that. Definitely. Their career... I think, especially in the case of like somebody like Christopher Lee, sure, he came to be known as our, our guy. You know, we're monster kids. He's our Dracula. He was the Frankenstein monster. He's our horror guy. But 
man, he was also in the Star Wars films and the Lord of the Rings films. And that was towards the end of his career. Before that, he was doing James Bond movies. He was all over the place. And Vincent Price is similar. You know, he did so many films, especially before he really got into the horror mold. He was doing dramas and historical pieces and romances. The man's talent ran deep. And I'm glad Mm -hmm. he shared so much of it with us. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. In The Tingler, he plays a scientist. At first, you might think he's a titian or somebody determining nothing but the cause of death. But no, he's a scientist and he's exploring the fear sensation that he eventually calls The Tingler. And I think most listeners have seen The Tingler. But if you haven't, like Scott said, you need to go back and see it. We're probably going to spoil a few bits in here, bits and pieces here and there, but not too much. The Tingler is this creature, this entity that we ultimately learn resides in each one of us. And the only way to make it go away when we're scared is to scream, scream for your lives. And I love, <laughs> yeah. Oh, that, that, you know, where, where the director comes out in the front of the movie and gives that little talk, you know, Oh, that's, that's so perfect. It's, it's classic William Castle. Yeah. Classic William Castle. The man was the master of the gimmick. Again, he didn't just do the horror or the sci-fi, but he did get known for that. Uh, before he got into these movies, he was doing some film noir and some drama, that sort of thing. But you know, he did this, House of Haunted Hill, Mr. Sardonicus, all these wonderful movies with these wonderful gimmicks. And I love the gimmick they talk about in The Tingler. I would love to see this movie in a theater with the seats rigged up. Yes, yes. You know, when I was a kid and, and a teenager and I was reading a lot about horror, in a, it, both in a historical sense and in sort of, a, I guess, a literary uh, sense, I read about the gimmicks that he used specifically in this film and in others. And I thought it was like a joke, but it was a legit part of the budget. It was a quarter million, according to Wikipedia anyway, it was a quarter million dollar part of the budget to buy the hardware necessary to install in the seats to make them feel like the tingle the vibration and that that amazes me you know nobody would do that today oh no not at all other than the only thing that i could think of is you know the use of 3d which is making a big comeback which i kind of like actually i would i would love to see you know somebody try and pull off something like this yeah sure i mean especially these days in the day and age of the multiplexes and the chains and all that i can't imagine a theater outfitting itself for just one movie. Right. But, boy, that would be awesome. Where's that time machine? I want to go back and watch this movie that way. Well, and I guess they had the benefit of, you know, obviously not having the massive theater chains and things like that that we have today. They had the old school movie houses and, and, uh, but I could see, you know, like an Alamo draft house or somebody, you know, pulling something like this off. We should start a Kickstarter. <laughs> to get our hands on a theater and then outfit it for nothing but these types of movies. Yes. Yes. That would be amazing. Well, you know, if, if you think about it, it's sort of that immersive storytelling technique that, uh, that video game consoles have been trying to give us. And now that with the vibration feedback in the game controllers and stuff, you oh, know, yeah. it's, 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 uh, this is like the earliest example of the rumble pack. I like that. Now somebody needs to make a Tingler video game and give yes. us credit because we were talking yes. about it first. But somebody needs to do that. Yes. I like that idea. Vincent Price, he plays Dr. Chapin and, or, or uh, Warren. I mean, they call him Warren through the entire film. And he finds this thing. He's not in the most financially stable situation. He's married into money. And his wife, I mentioned earlier, he's dealing with the horror of his, his wife. His wife is not very faithful to him. And granted, 
he might be responsible a little bit. You know, he spends a lot of time in his lab, not a lot of time with the lady. But she just flaunts it in front of him. She's having affairs left and right. I was going to say, you know, saying that she wasn't very faithful is kind of like saying Hitler wasn't a very nice guy. <laughs> uh, yeah, it, and she doesn't even really bother to hide it. I mean, you know, she sort of lies about it a little bit. I remember the scene where he comes in and there's two, there's two wine glasses there. And he's like, oh, you have two, you know, and we just heard the door close as he was coming in. And she sort of says, yeah, I whatever, I fixed a glass for you or something. And yeah, it's just, she's, she's a piece of work and she's absolutely gorgeous. Sure. He, and he's, he's one of these guys who's kind of married to his work and he's all about being in the lab. And so I can see, you know, how that could have developed naturally. I don't know if we just compared the actress Patricia Cutts to Hitler or not, but. Well, you know, not, not, <laughs> not intentionally, not intentionally, but that it's that actually that aspect, the character development, because it doesn't have anything to do with the plot, really. It's just, it's a side character piece that gives the movie an extra layer of depth that is kind of surprising in a movie like this, where it's a fairly short running time. It's surprising that in a movie sort of this focused on a gimmick, that there is some decent character development. And there's some stuff in the movie that doesn't enhance the plot directly, but it actually does enhance the character. The relationships between all the characters, I think, are interestingly complicated. This isn't just a cookie cutter, you know, man and wife, and there's a an assistant who's got a pretty girlfriend. There's this almost complicated for no reason kind of relationship, and I feel it gives this movie a real-world connection. It makes it feel more real. I mean, granted, the Tingler's not real. At least I don't think so. And <laughs> But, well, but the relationship... Yeah, well, it, we know how to deal with it if it is. Yes. Th- thanks, Vincent Price and William Castle. But the relationships here, you don't have the woman with the money. She's got the money because the dad died, and now she's the guardian of the little sister who wants more money than she's giving out, and there's the, the affairs happening and the playing around. and it, It's real. It, it feels... Like more than just a cookie cutter, like TV sitcom kind of relationship or family. Yeah, yeah. And that's one of the things I appreciated about it was that fleshed out the whole movie without it feeling padded or unnecessary. Exactly. Now, I mentioned the money. One of the sticking points, I suppose, between Isabel's character and Lucy, played by Pamela Lincoln. You know, she's the little sister. And with Isabel being the guardian and the one in charge of the money, she holds Lucy on a short leash. She holds her husband on a short leash. She thinks she's in charge, and she doesn't want her little sister marrying David, the lab assistants, even though in real life, Daryl Hickman, the actor who played that, and Pamela Lincoln did end up getting married uh, for years, in, in fact, but uh, before they divorced. She really feels like she thinks she's in charge. Yeah. No. <laughs> Ultimately, no. And I, I want to go back to that scene again that I mentioned earlier when Vincent Price pulls the gun on her. Oh, man, I love that scene. I, I love the back and forth, the language going back and forth, the dialogue between the two of them, the way they move around that room. Mm. I'm yes. getting tinglers up and down my arms just thinking about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, and it's, you know, she thinks that she's – the one in charge, she thinks that she's the one that has the power in the relationship, but you know, he takes that back and is, yeah, I don't think she realizes quite how unhinged he is. She's right about him. He spent so much time in his lab. He is, you said, married to his work. In some ways, she's right. He is not present. 
with the relationships that he has with most people. He is obsessed, solely focused on his work to the detriment of some of the people around him. Mm-hmm. It's rubbing off on David. It's it's definitely not good for <laughs> uh, his wife and the deaf mute and Ollie. I mean, it's not the most healthy way to go about living, I suppose. He's definitely a good portrayal of somebody who's mentally he's he's at some point his train left the tracks but (laughs) but on the surface he looks like he has it all together sure not until you see him you know start talking about finding somebody to pull a tingler out of and where he's you know injecting himself with lsd and all these other things that he does that you know no sane person would do that you begin to see the depth of his insanity yeah. We mentioned the deaf mute. I found that to be another interesting thing to throw into this movie. Now, granted, you needed one for the Tingler to become so present and so big and, and able to pull it out. Right. But but I love the idea of this deaf mute running a silent movie theater. Well, and the, the interesting thing there, too, was um, that power dynamic um, mm-hmm. was for the time between Higgins and his wife, Martha – she had all the money and I'm not really clear on where this money was coming from because it didn't seem like their theater was that big of a money-making opportunity. Yeah, it's true. But in in any case, however she was coming across the money, she had a safe full of it and she controlled it and didn't let him have access to any of it. And he was her lackey, I guess for, for lack of a better word. And so it's interesting that in this time period that the film was made, that the women are the ones in charge in almost every case, if not every case in the relationship. And the men are doing whatever they can to get that power back. Kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier. This movie came out in the late fifties, 1959, in fact. And, you know, is this a period in time where women are starting to get a little bit more power in society? And is this something that maybe men are afraid of? So when we have the horror movies and the monster movies where women are in charge, something horrible has to happen to them. You know, you can start to read into that a little bit. Again, it's a good story first. Yes. But if you start to poke at it like we're doing here, you do see some of these things start to creep in. And you're absolutely right about Martha. She, even though she comes into the movie with, quote unquote a disability or two and -hmm. she can't speak she can't uh hear she is clearly in charge she's got ollie wrapped around her finger she's the one telling him what to do when it comes to running the movie theater you know when he's telling warren about how they spend so much time cleaning the movie theater you know he's the one that's doing it yeah i I don't get the impression martha's spending a lot of time cleaning up no she's she's running the box office and the business side and he's doing all the the grunt work you know, and it's interesting with her as a character. I don't know if she, I don't know if the actress, and maybe you know, if the actress was actually deaf or mute, but this is the first movie I remember seeing that uses sign language and it really tries to make an attempt at giving what I'm assuming is a fairly accurate representation of somebody with those disabilities. So it's interesting. Again, it's another one of those. They could have had a person who couldn't hear, couldn't speak. And it could have been less of a char- less of a fully fleshed out character, but they took the time to really make her a character. Definitely, she's a person. Yeah, there, there's stuff going on there with her. She's not just 
insert wife here. You know, she, <laughs> right. she's a fully fleshed out person. Like you said, I don't think she was really deaf and mute. I, I don't know much about the actress, Judith Evelyn. I, I'd like to know more cause I thought she did great. She does stand out a little bit. I've heard her or read her referred to as like a silent movie actor in a sound picture. And she does kind of have that presence Mm-hmm. In the film, she does stand out mm-hmm. a little bit. But again, she's also a domineering person with tons of psychoses. She can't yes. stand the sight of blood. She's got to wash up all the time after handling money. Yep. So she's got her own quirks and, and things that make her tick in an interesting way. Because she can't scream, though, of course, she's going to have the biggest tinkler of them all. Yes. And, and that's where... Uh, yeah. yeah, I love the little touches of OCD that she had and and... Everything was neat as a pin and everything was just, their house was just very neat and everything had its place and it, so, and the, and the blood and everything else. So yeah, again, little character touches that they didn't necessarily need to give her, but they did. And so I really, I liked that aspect of it. Speaking of things that they didn't need to give, but they did. Did Vincent Price or did Warren really have to take LSD? <laughs> Such a fun scene, though. You know, apparently during this period in time, LSD was legal. <laughs> right. So, you know, and that was it was interesting because I don't think I don't think I actually caught um, that it was LSD because they actually used the use the, the, the term lysergic acid. And it, it didn't click immediately that they were talking about LSD. But of course, in thinking about it afterwards, I was like, oh, OK. So yeah, that was, you know, basically he he decides he's going to try and and develop and I don't know, cut it out of himself. I don't know what his thought his He thought wanted to know what it felt there. like to have a tingler up his spine. <laughs> right. So he shoots himself up with with LSD and has the big freak out, which I loved. It was a, it was an amazing little scene of him just losing it completely, and I loved the part where he actually opens the window, but he says, "I can't open the window." So, you know, he's, his, they could have done all kinds of psychedelic effects. They could have done um, something different to get across that he was having a serious trip. But they just, it was acting. It was all acting. And I thought that was cool. They, they let Vincent Price do it. They didn't yep. throw a bunch of stuff. I don't know if it was a budgetary thing or they intentionally did not want to throw a lot of stuff in there. They just let him act. And when yeah. Vincent Price wants to go full on camp and over the top, Boy, he's the master at it, and Absolutely. he did. He looks great. I was terrified <laughs> yeah, for him. Yeah, yeah, it's a great scene. And there was, and I love the fact that they didn't show all of it. One of the things that I love about uh, old school horror is whether it's because of a budget or because they were just smarter about it. I don't know, but things happened off screen. These days, we don't let things happen off screen. Right. But they would cut away to his lab assistant peering into the 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 little overhead window to, into the lab to, to see what he was doing, what was going on. And they would describe it. And then they would cut back to Vincent Price acting. And then they would cut back to them standing outside and describing the action. So that was kind of nice to see, you know, them cut away, you know, even though there was nothing graphic in the scene, it's nice that in the movies that were made in the fifties, excuse me, the forties and fifties, they were willing to let things happen off screen 
and let the audience's imagination do some of the heavy lifting. Well, it builds the suspense and the tension, too, because every time you cut away from Vincent Price, you spend the rest of that next scene saying, I want to go back to Price. What's going on now? Oh, my God. You know? Yep. So it builds up this this tension and this stress, and it does let your brain kind of spin a little bit and come up with something even worse than what's, what they could come up with with special effects-wise. And I loved it. I love this scene. I think this is probably one of the most iconic scenes in the film, outside of the standing in the theater and telling people to scream. Yeah. Th- this is one of the most iconic scenes in the film for me. When I think the tingler and I distill it, I get Vincent Price telling people to scream and him taking LSD. Yep. <laughs> and it's funny. And I'm sure we'll get to the scene in a minute, but I, I have a different favorite scene. Okay. What's that? The bathtub. Oh, yeah. When I got to the bathtub scene and I saw the color, I was like, what the heck? Because I didn't remember. It had been so long since I had seen this movie. I didn't remember this scene. And there's the bath. The, the bathtub fills with blood. And you know that it's blood because it's bright red. Pretty amazing. This is a black and white movie. And this shows this the bathtub filling up with blood. And there's this bloody hand that reaches out of the blood. And it's just shocking because you're not expecting the color. And I, I went red. I was like, how did they accomplish this? Did they, you know, rotoscope it or what did they do? And they, they painted the whole set black and white. They made the actress up in gray tone makeup. Everything was shot in color, but the whole set and everything in the set was black and white as though it were filmed in black and white. And of course, so that's how, and they, of course the bathtub was, legitimately filled with red fluid and so yeah i mean that's that's an amazing way to handle that and and i did not expect that that would be so that they would take a painstaking you know sort of practical effect kind of approach to making that scene i love that too and that's one of the things i love about these old older horror movies is the diy approach to this stuff you can't just throw it in the computer and do whatever you're going to do to it you've got to come up with a real world typically on set way of doing these things and the ingenuity there it's brilliant and it's so well done because when you're watching it you don't realize when it transitions from being black and white to when it transitions to being color film made to look like black and white right uh so that's it's seamless and then you've got this shocking amount of blood and the color uh that's that's just surreal uh and of course it works because the scene itself is so surreal because at this point you know martha is is losing it Mm -hmm. so that's my favorite scene in the movie in part for the surreality of it and also because of the length they went to to make the scene happen Sure. No, it definitely works. And it is a standout. And, and okay, I'll throw that into my list too. If I'm distilling the movie down, three scenes now. The bathtub <laughs> scene will be in there too, because you're absolutely right. I don't know if this ever happened to this movie, but I know some films from this era would have like a color shot or two. But when they got played on television, the people at the TV studio weren't really aware that there might be a color scene. So they didn't allow the color scene to go out because they had everything programmed for a black and white movie. I know I was a teenage Frankenstein has had that happen to it in the past when it was shown on television. There's a shot mm. at the very end that goes to color. But okay. the guys in the studio running everything had everything calibrated for black and white, so they didn't know they had to switch it over to color. That yeah. could be why I didn't – I may not have ever seen this particular scene because I'm sure that when I saw it, it was on – it might have even been on a black and white TV because we yeah. had a little black and white TV. Um, yes, those existed for our audience members that might not remember them. Um <laughs> It, so yeah, I may have actually never seen it in a way that the color would have been would have come through, but through the wonders of the internets, 
um, yeah, I got to see the scene as it was supposed to be. And I can imagine, uh, even though the audience at the time was aware of color film, and as you said, there were films that used some color and there may have been some, you know, full color films, but still I can imagine how shocking, uh, that scene would have been. And it had, a, it delivered a, a really nice punch, a visual punch. Oh, I bet. So. It's one of the things that I regret about some of these movies and that, that I live in this day and age now is that I can watch all these things on DVD and video. And I made a time machine crack earlier. If I could go and see these movies not knowing what I was going to get, to get that scene in color with the, the blood coming up with the bathtub and everything and not know about it going into it, not having read about it in tons of famous monsters of Filmland magazines or scary monsters or whatever and just not know. Wow. Yeah, absolutely. A little spoiled, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, but hey, the, the fact that we get to see these movies, just the fact that we have this available to be seen is amazing because sure. there are so many films that have been lost to time and, oh, you know, yeah. de- and deliberate and, and in some cases deliberate uh, destruction. So, yeah, uh, it's nice to be able to see them. But, yeah, if I could go back and watch some of these movies in the movie palaces of the day. Uh, with the audiences oh, wow. uh, who, who weren't as jaded as our audiences are now, I, that would be amazing. I don't know what I'd spend more time watching, though, the movie or the audience to see how they react to the movie. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And I, I wonder, you know, we talked about the gimmick earlier, and apparently he hired screamers and he hired nurses to sit in the uh, to sit in the lobby, uh, and they would actually take the screamer out on a gurney. You know, again, <laughs> it's like. You know, there's this tradition uh, in theater of and and in and in cultures of hiring professional grievers and professional wailers and and professional screamers and whatever. And it's again, you know, you wouldn't see anybody try to do that today. You know, try and and hire uh, somebody to stand up in the middle of a movie and scream, or in the middle of a theater production and scream to add to the ambiance of the movie. That just tickled me to death. So I, yeah, I would love to see. What actually happened mm-hmm. at a this little you know small town theater movie theater where somebody legitimately stood up or or even the hired person stood up and screamed to see the audience reaction would be amazing oh yeah can we can we talk about the tingler? Can we talk about the little beastie itself? What did you think of that? Oh God, that's one of those you know we were talking earlier about cheesy special effects yeah. rubber monsters. Um, it did take me out of the movie a couple of times. They spent so much time showing it if they didn't show it so much. I know. This is one of those areas where they should have showed less and then hinted yeah. more. But having said that, you know, again, this is this is cheesy, campy, fun in a way. Um, I don't know that there's any way that they could have realistically portrayed something quite like this creature you know i'm willing to let i let it slide i i still enjoy the movie thoroughly but yeah it's absolutely horrible uh considering how much money they spent in other areas maybe they should have spent another five or six grand on the titular monster or at least least just put some i don't know jelly on it or something to make it look shiny because it it missed it seemed so flat it's so or articulate it a little bit yeah some articulation because it was basically it basically looked like a cast a single piece cast from, yeah. you know, rubber or or something similar because it just sort of jiggled. 
I think I saw like a middle legs move once, but yeah, it really could have used some more articulation. That said, I don't think it ruins the movie at all, and I don't want listeners to think that we're we're poo pooing the film here. This no. the movie itself offers so much that it's just this one thing. I wish it was done a little bit better. I mean, if you're going to have a a monster in the title of the movie, you might want to make sure that it's it's awesome, <laughs> as awesome as you can make it. <laughs> but yeah, no, absolutely, it doesn't kill the movie and. Uh, it's not, you know, it's, it's not a whole lot of screen time and not every time it's sometimes when it's on the screen is fine. Like when it was, when it grabbed a hold of the woman's leg, I think in the theater that looked okay, but it sure. was when it was doing any long shots where it was moving across the floor that it was like, yeah, okay, this is obviously a, a rubber monster. So yeah, it, that hurt it a little bit, but again, there's so many other good things about the movie that I can let that go. Certainly. And you mentioned screen time. I think one of my most favorite shots, and it's fun and it's a little over the top, is when the Tingler actually appears on screen literally because it goes across the projection yes. of the film. Yes. And yeah, it's a little over the top and a little kind of on the nose, but I love it. Well, you know, and, and there have been so many movies since then that have used that whole concept. Sure. Like, uh, Gremlins 2 right off the top mm-hmm. of my head where they there's that verisimilitude, you know, um, you're in the theater watching the movie, and the movie within the movie has a film break. So, yeah, I thought that was kind of cool. Sure. Uh, first use of that that I know of, anyway. So th- if they had done more stuff like that, or when he was behind the medical screen um, removing the tingler, I think we got oh, a, sure. a shot of it in shadow. More shadows would have been a good thing. But, yeah, it's there are some, there are some really good spots where it shows up and it does it does work. Uh, the thing that, the thing that really worked for me from a horror aspect was this thing being sort of integrated with your spine. So from a body horror perspective, I'm a big fan of body horror. It, it, it was nice because you realize that when he had to remove it, he was cutting open the patient's back and just that kind of creepy cringe inducing part of it is, is worked pretty well for me. Sure. Well, in the three x-rays that he shows his assistant near the beginning yes. of the movie where you yes. see it and he says he's playing it in reverse or, or showing them in reverse order, but you see it growing in size. And it's like, wow, that that was pretty unnerving for me. So watch oh, that. And, yeah. And and just that, I mean, going back to that scene where he pulls the gun on his wife mm-hmm. and the whole reason he did that was to scare the crap out of her. <laughs> and he shoots. He literally shoots her and she faints. And it's just it's like. This guy is a, is a mental case. Um, yeah, that's that's brilliant. And then he use and then he does all this so that he can take the X rays of the tingle of his wife's tingler. I mean, crazy, insane. Beautiful. But we love it. But we love it. Yeah. Yes. Yep. I mean, I didn't I didn't realize he was making X rays at first when he was doing it. But yeah, I mean, it's like I was like, that's just you're you're crazy. Um, so yeah, that. The, from a body horror perspective, this worked pretty well because this creature was, is living inside you and it's living inside everybody. And so, yeah, it's just, yeah, it's good and creepy. Good and creepy. And you mentioned Gremlins too, and I think I'd be remiss if I didn't mention, of course, that was directed by Joe Dante, who's one of us, big monster kid, and he directed the movie Matinee, which 
has a lot of shades of the William Castle story, basically. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Yeah, I won't want to mention that just because I think listeners might call me out if I don't. I love matinee. Yes. <laughs> and I love that Joe Dante is one of us and keeps bringing this aesthetic to these modern films. Absolutely. So The Tingler is pretty easily available. You can get your hands on it. And if you haven't seen it, listeners, what are you doing? you got to see this thing. It's Yeah, it's not a big chunk of time. It's no. like It's like 82 minutes or mm-hmm. something, so... Um, it's definitely worth a watch. Is there anything else about the film that you'd like to mention before we start wrapping up? There is something that bothered me. Oh, okay. Um, and this is a spoiler, but, you know, I don't feel bad spoiling a, what, 60, 55-year-old movie? Something like that. Um, making Higgins, the one who, who physically scared her to death, because I sure thought, and maybe we were supposed to think, I guess, I guess we were supposed to think that Warren gave her a shot of the LSD intending to scare her to death. Um, but instead it was, uh, her husband that ended up scaring her to death. And there were parts of that, that I, I, I guess they were trying to do a misdirect, but it didn't quite work for me. And it didn't make a whole lot of sense given anything that I knew about Higgins per se. So that was weird. And then mm-hmm. the whole, then the whole when they got her to the mortuary, the sort of the lack of reaction about oh your your wife is dead and it doesn't seem to be a big deal, you know that section felt a little strange to me. The the the, the scene where she's actually seeing all of these things and you're assuming that she's you know it's blurring the lines between reality and her visions. Um, that's wonderful. But then when you find out that he's the one behind it, that didn't quite work for me. A little disappointing. You kind of expected Vincent Price to be the one pulling yeah. those strings. But, you know, that's, again, that's, for me, that was the only flat note in the movie that didn't work for me. The rest of it was was top-notch. I loved it. Excellent. Well, Scott, I want to thank you again for coming to Monster Kid Radio to talk about a you know something that's playing in my wheelhouse a little bit, which happens to be your wheelhouse as well. I mentioned the Patreon page. Mm-hmm. I'm going to put a link in the show notes to this. It's patreon.com slash, and then just your name, Scott Roche. And his yeah. last name, gentlemen and ladies, is R-O-C-H-E. Again, mm-hmm. there will be a link in the show notes over at monsterkidradio.net. Go through and read these stories. You don't have to be a patron to read them, but after you read them, you might consider becoming a patron. Just saying. Yeah, you know, if you if you whether you become a patron at a dollar level or higher, whatever, uh, you'll get things like free looks at my works in progress, and you'll get discounts on ebooks and print books as they come out. I believe in returning some value in addition to just the stories that I'm telling for the dollar. And I I wanted to talk for just a second about mm-hmm. the new book that I've got coming out. Which well, yeah, if you didn't, I was going to. So. <laughs> I don't know if you did this on purpose or not, but I'll give you credit to say that you did. Because the movie that we watched for this is The Tingler, and it's all about fear. The new book that I've got coming out is House of Phobos, which is a collection of short stories all about phobias and fear. So uh, definitely... I'll, I'll uh, take credit for that. Sure, okay. <laughs> there's a connection <laughs> there. And uh, and I, I actually wrote those stories uh, and put them on Patreon in their, in their sort of rough form. That whole collection came about because, uh, I, again, I hit a dry spot and I needed some inspiration. And so I asked people on Facebook for their fears and I got some really cool answers, some ones that I didn't expect and some that I did. And wrote wrote the short stories based on those phobias. Now, by the time this episode goes out, the book will have been released. But I want to tell you, Scott, I've already pre-ordered it. 
So awesome. hopefully by the time this episode comes out, I've had a chance to read a lot of the stories, if not the whole thing. I'm really looking forward to it. I've become a fan of your work. Keep writing, sir, because I want to keep reading it. Thank you. Thank you. And again, listeners, you can hear Scott pretty much every week over at the Dead Robots Society. Again, there will be a link in the show notes to that. But just look up Dead Robots Society, and there's two S's there between robots and society. So go look that up and listen to Scott with Justin McCumber, Terry Mixon, and Paul E. Cooley talking about their writing process. And even if you're not a writer, they still spin some pretty good stories over there, too. So check them out over there. Scott, I'd like to have you back on the show in the future, maybe, and I'll certainly take you up on your offer to appear on DRS. That'd be a blast. Excellent. Thank you, Derek. Thank you, Scott. Like I said at the beginning of all this, Scott is one of the co-hosts of the Dead Robot Society podcast. You can find that over at deadrobotssociety.com. Com. Again, there will be a link in the show notes to everything we talk about here on the show, like Scott's website, which is just his name, scottroche.com. And again, his last name is spelled R-O-C-H-E. This is where you can subscribe to his mailing list and learn about all of his upcoming and current book releases, like his anthology, House of Phobos. Now, when we recorded with Scott, the book hadn't been released yet. It was just on pre-order. But now the book is out. I've got it on my Kindle. I've read every short story in there. And yeah, he's right. These stories are all about different phobias, different fears. And those of you who know me probably will understand why the short story Teeth is the one that really got to me. Scott, you pushed all the right buttons in this story. Well done, sir, and I cannot wait for future Esho St. Clair books. There will also be a link to his Patreon page where you can go read the short stories that he put out during the month of October about all those classic monsters, or at least stories that were inspired by the classic monsters that we love so much. I've already started talking with at least one other member of the Dead Robot Society podcast and plan on having him on the show in the near future. I've got an open invite to all four of those guys, though, so hopefully we can get them on the Monster Kid Radio down the line. And of course, Scott Roche is always welcome back here on the show. What lovely music for a murder or two or three or nine. Who's this? Ladies and gentlemen, I want you to meet a dear friend. Nine killed you. Nine shall die. Your wife no fives. But you I will kill. But you can't, Doctor. I am already dead. Here, how are we going to get him off this? You take his head and I'll take his feet. Let's unscrew him. Doctor Fives, who samples the finer things of life in his own inimitable way and experiments with fascinating instruments of death. The what, sir? The guitar. The ten curses visited upon the pharaohs before Exodus. Nine shall die. Nine eternities in doom. Uh, curse of boils, of bats... Frogs? Frogs, yes. And the curse of blood. Curse of hail in the bloody middle of nowhere.
doctor finds. Hmm? Probably the most terrifying motion picture you'll ever see. Thank you. I've been standing there for centuries. <laughs> yes, I suppose it seemed... Why, it's raining, but you're not wet. No, I'm not, am I? Uh, where are you coming from? I was watching a wonderfully terrifying double feature movie. I was a teenage Frankenstein in Blood of Dracula. Oh? Professor Frankenstein created a teenage monster to bring havoc and terror to all who meet him. But he left a few parts out, particularly in the poor lad's face. Uh, may we change and the subject? And the vampire in Blood of Dracula, quite unfriendly except when hungry, than any friend will do for a few ghastly moments. Please, I... Oh, here's where I must leave you. But there's nothing here but an old cemetery. Yes, I know. I want to meet some old friends here. After you see I was a teenage Frankenstein and Blood of Dracula, you might drop back here. We'll discuss the pictures to some length. <laughs> yes, yes, I'll do that! <laughs> Hi, this is Joel Hodson, the creator of Mystery Science Theater 3000. You're listening to Monster Kid Radio, why don't you? When I'm able to meet any other Monster Kids or Monster Kid Radio listeners at a local movie theater to watch a movie, well, we call that a Monster Kid Radio crash. And here in a couple of days in Portland, Oregon at the historic Academy Theater, we've got a big one coming. I didn't find out this was going to happen until it was announced on Facebook by the official Julie Adams Facebook page. Of course, Chris McMillan from the Shadow Over Portland has shared this post on Facebook I've talked about it a little bit online. Creature from the Black Lagoon, the original 1954 film in 3D on 35mm at the Academy Theater in Portland with Julie Adams in attendance. She's going to be there. She'll be available for a meet and greet and autograph signing. And there will even be a Q&A session after the movie. Tickets are $10. As of this recording, there are still seats remaining but I'd still recommend you go online and buy your ticket in advance. Go to the Academy Theater's website. This is www.academytheater, and that's theater spelled E-R at the end, pdx.com. Again, a link in the show notes, monsterkidradio.net's got you covered, but you can go straight to the Academy Theater's website and buy the ticket. There they have will call. You can print the tickets up at home. Whatever you need to do to get yourself to Creature from the Black Lagoon Thursday. November 12th. Of course, Julie Adams is going to be a guest at the Living Dead Horror Convention this upcoming weekend, and she's scheduled to do a Q&A there as well, along with Barbara Seal and Lisa Marie. I and the aforementioned Chris McMillan are slotted to co-host the Q&A with her. But, you know, if you want to get some Julie Adams time beforehand, Thursday night, the Academy Theater is where you're going to get that. I've never been to the Academy Theater. So I'm really excited to check this place out, see what they have to offer. The website makes it look pretty cool. I've seen pictures. Should be fun. Also, I feel like I've been doing this a lot lately on my podcast. Big thanks to my wife. I wasn't going to go because November 12th is actually my wife's birthday. So priorities, you know, but when she found out Julie Adams was going to be there, she pretty much forced me to go. Now, granted, when I say forced, it's not like she twisted my arm. She like maybe she, like touched my pinky a little bit. And I was like, okay, fine. Uncle, fine. I'll go. I'll go. Fine. I'll go see the movie. Anyway, it'll be a lot of fun. I hope to see you there. If you are going to be there, look me up. I'll be wearing my Monster Kid radio shirt. I'll have a portable recorder with me. I'm going to try to record at the theater 
and put that on an upcoming episode of Monster Kid Radio. Maybe we'll even put you on the show. Before we wrap up this episode of Monster Kid Radio, I just wanted to take a second to mention a couple of passings that have happened within the past week. First of all, the king of the customizers has left us. And if you don't know who that is, maybe you know the name George Barris. And if you don't know who that is, well, you've never seen the 1960s Batman TV show. He created the Batmobile. He was also responsible for creating a number of other iconic custom cars. The man was an artist in a field that just makes my jaw drop. I mean, these custom cars, they look so cool. And he made such an impact on pop culture overall. I never had a chance to meet him, but I did have a chance to meet Charles Herbert. He's the other person who recently passed away. Now, Charles Herbert was a child actor. He appeared in a handful of monster movies, 13 Ghosts, The Colossus of New York, and The Fly. And he was one of the guests at the Monster Bash 2014 that I attended last year. I regret that I never really recorded with him, but that's not to say I didn't chat with him. He actually made Monster Bash pretty memorable for me. He and Beverly Garland were having a meal together in the hotel restaurant type area, and I was there eating a meal myself, and I'm not sure why I was alone. I think my wife was probably still sleeping in the hotel room, and I'm not really sure where Scott and Tracy Morris were, so I was there by myself eating, and as I'm sitting there, Beverly looks over and and catches my attention and said, I looked familiar to her. Now, I don't know where from. She'd never seen me before and vice versa. Well, I'd seen her, but it's not like she can look back at me while I'm watching that episode of Star Trek she's on. But anyway, she was very friendly. And then Charles Herbert started talking and the man's smile was infectious. He was such a friendly guy. He looked like he was having a real blast and that he and Beverly Garland took the time to chat up this guy who's just having some eggs one morning before the Monster Bash. I mean, that was pretty special. And a couple of times I went by his table during the convention and I just chatted with him and he's like, Hey Derek, how's it going? Very, very friendly man was involved in some very iconic films. And when I read that he had passed, well, it obviously made me think about my experiences with him at Monster Bash. So I just wanted to take a moment to recognize uh, both Charles Herbert and George Barris and thank them for everything that they've done for Monster Kingdom. And if I had the sound effect here, or at least if I wasn't concerned about playing a sound effect that I don't have the rights to, this is where I would insert that da 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 from the Batman TV show to transition to the end of the show where I thank everybody for listening to Monster Kid Radio and making this podcast part of your pod diet this week. If you need to know anything about Monster Kid Radio between episodes, well, you just go over to monsterkidradio.net. This is where you're going to find our contact information, like our voicemail line, which is 503-479-5657. That's 503-479-5MKR. We also have an email address, monsterkidradio at gmail.com. We have a link to every single song that's appeared here on the show, so just click on songs, and it's alphabetized by band. So you can check out all of those bands, listen to their music a little bit. We have a link to our Patreon page where you can become a patron of Monster Kid Radio and help support the show that way while earning yourself some pretty sweet rewards along the way. We also have a link to our Facebook group as well as a link to our various promos that we have here available at Monster Kid Radio. If you are a podcaster and you'd like to play a promo for Monster Kid Radio, this is where you can find those audio files. Now, this is the Spook Show series, and we had various podcasters help out by lending their voices to this project. I'm talking about Craig Beam, Court Psyops, Sean Morrissey, and Jeff Pullier. These guys are awesome. They did a great job. I had a lot of fun putting these promos together. So 
If you're a podcaster, want to play these promos, let me know, and I'll return the favor and play a promo from your show, or at least give you a shout-out. Next week on Monster Kid Radio, in episode 244, I have one of two ways we can go. Now, I'm hoping that I'll be able to record enough at the Monster Kid Radio Crash Creature from the Black Lagoon, as well as the Living Dead Horror Convention, to make an episode out of it. If that's the case, well, then episode 244 will be all about that. If not, I have sitting on deck a conversation with Christopher Page from the Orphaned Entertainment Podcast. I've played the promo for the Orphaned Entertainment Podcast quite a bit here on the show, so you know that that podcast is all about movies and media that's fallen into the public domain. It's a fun time. I love listening to their show, and I've got him on the show to talk about a decidedly non-public domain film, and that would be the 1960 movie, The Time Machine. I actually recorded this episode with Christopher months ago, but I wanted to play up that whole time travel angle by sitting on it for actually... I just wanted to make sure I got a lot of monster movie stuff in around Halloween. The Time Machine is less about monsters, more about sci-fi. I mean, there are some Morlocks, and those are kind of cool. You know, we're going to get to that. So either the Time Machine or the Living Dead Horror Convention and the Monster Kid Radio Crash. If that doesn't happen, well, just stay tuned, okay? You're going to get both in the future anyway. Again, thanks to Scott Roche for being part of the show this week. Thank you to the listeners for sharing the posts that go out on Facebook announcing a new show, for retweeting the tweets, for giving us reviews on the iTunes store, for talking us up on all of your social media outlets, means a lot to me to have you along for the ride. Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio, LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio, LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 3.0 unported license. Of course, that doesn't apply to the song, when the monster came, that belongs to this cool surf band called the Young Gorgie Surf Team, based out of Edinburgh. The album is called The Urban Surf Collection. You can find them at theyounggorgiesurfteam.bandcamp.com or follow the link in the show notes. They gave us the okay to play their song on the show, so go show them a little bit of love. Talk to everybody next week. Mm-hmm.